بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله وشكر لله الحمد لله على السلامة الحمد لله it's very good to be back after a period of time away in the city of Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam in the city that we've been covering for quite a while in the Medinan section of the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam and alhamdulillah it's always beautiful to study the seerah as we have been and to go there physically to connect the events to the actual physical location and to reflect on those lessons uh, before, during and after teaching them and learning about them. Uh, so Alhamdulillah, it's good to be back. And inshallah, we're going to pick up where we left off a few weeks ago. And in the last session, we were going over the letters that the Prophet Sallallahu sent to various emperors and leaders in the surrounding areas. And we said that the reason why he began sending these letters after the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah is because the Treaty of Al-Hudaybiyah uh, was a political treaty that opened doors and it facilitated travel. It facilitated him sending emissaries, messengers, to these various lands where they could travel freely and go unharmed as representatives carrying these messages. So in the previous session, we talked a bit about that and we examined just some of the major letters that were sent by the Prophet to these rulers. Now primarily, there are four letters, four rulers that were addressed and there are others that we'll, we'll talk about today inshallah and others that occurred later in the seerah. But primarily, we looked at the letter that was sent to the Najashi, the emperor of Ethiopia of the Aksum Empire. We then looked at the letter that was sent to Heraclius, the Qaisar, as, the, as a title for the ruler of the Byzantine Empire. And I believe that's where we left off. We left off with that lengthy discussion uh, between him uh, and the letter bearer asking questions about the status of the Prophet وسلم, a bit about his life and history, how the message was conveyed and how it was received by his people. And we left off there and there were two others that we wanted to talk about but we ran out of time. And that is the letter that was sent to the ruler of the Coptic kingdom in Egypt and the Persian emperor. So inshallah, we'll talk about those two today. And then we'll look at some of the greater lessons we can derive from those letters and how they were conveyed and how the, the content of the letters and what all of that tells us about how the message of Islam should be conveyed to other people. So we left off, we, we finished the discussion about Heraclius 
And the next letter is the letter that was sent to the ruler of the Coptic Egyptian kingdom. Does anyone know his title? Muqawqis. Muqawqis. That's a title, just like Najashi is a title, just like Qaisar is a title. And there's some debate about the name of that figure. Uh, some give him the name uh, Cyrus, not Cyrus the Great, but another Cyrus. Allah knows best. But he was the ruler of the Coptic Empire. Now, who are the Copts? When you hear the word Qibti today, or Copt, C-O-P-T, you will probably think about the Egyptian Christian community that still exists in Egypt today. When you are in Cairo and you drive around, you will see many, many masajid, but you will also see Coptic churches. They're very prominent. They exist. So who are the Copts? Well, the Copts are basically the, the native Egyptians before the process of Arabization that occurred over hundreds of years. So they are the ethnic Egyptian people. You know, Egyptians, they'll say well, they're Arab. And they are in the sense that, number one, they speak Arabic. Uh, number two, there is Arabic ancestry within them. But that wasn't always the case. The actual native stock Egyptians were called Qipti. The Qiptis are the Coptic Egyptian people. So this was a, this was a Christian kingdom. And the Muqawqas was centered in Alexandria, Iskandaria. And the Prophet ﷺ had a letter written calling him to Islam. And that letter was delivered by a Sahabi known as Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a. Hatib, we're going to hear more about him later in the seerah. There's a very famous incident uh, in connection with him and the revelation of certain ayat in the Qur'an. But for now, Hatib has been selected to deliver this letter to the Muqawqas. He gets to Egypt with the letter. He delivers it to Muqawqas. And the content of the letter reads, and I quote, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, Min Muhammad Abdullah wa Rasulihi ila Mawqis Awim al Qibt. Salamun ala manitaba al Huda. So he opens with the Basmala and he says, From Muhammad, the Messenger of Allah, to Mukawqis Awim al Qibt. So here you could say Awim means the ruler of the cops but it also means the esteemed one of the cops. And this is a proof that you can address non-believers with honorary titles. You're not honoring them per se for their incorrect beliefs or their improper actions, but if it's a title by which they're recognized, you can address them with that. So he says, Azim al-Qibt. He says, Salamun ala man al huda. And this is a common phrase in the letters of the Prophet He's not addressing them with As-salamu alaykum because that is a greeting specific for the believers. But he does address them with salam, which is a kind of dua. Salam upon those who follow guidance. Salam upon those who follow guidance. He says, Amma ba'd, as for what follows, I 
call you to Islam, become a Muslim, and you will find peace, you'll be safe, and Allah will give you two rewards, double-fold rewards. Why? Why would Maqawqas receive two rewards if he was to become Muslim? Because he's Nasrani, he's Christian. As we mentioned in the previous session, that is for the Ahlul Kitab who become Muslim. They receive their reward twice over. They receive the reward for their previous Iman, the Iman in the previous Prophet, and the reward for Iman in Rasulullah either being Musawi or Isawi, meaning Mosaic coming from that tradition, or there's no translation for Isawi except Jesuit, but we wouldn't say Jesuit, because that's a very particular term. But they receive double the reward. This is what he tells them here. He says, and if you turn away, then upon you is the sin of the cops. Because as the leader, you can set the course for the guidance of your people by proclaiming your Islam, calling them to it, and allowing Islam to flourish and spread and creating a positive environment that allows it to spread. If you don't, then he bears some of the sin of the people remaining upon kufr. This is what he's telling him. He says, O people of the book, O people of the book, Ya ahlan kitabi, ta'alaw ila karimatin sawa'in baynana wa baynakum, alla na'buda illa Allah, wala nushrika bihi shay'a, وَلَا يَتَّخِذَ بَعْضُنَا بَعْضًا أَرْبَابًا مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ فَإِن تَوَلَّوْ فَقُولُ اشْهَدُوا بِأَنَّا مُسْلِمُونَ So these are not from the words of the Prophet Here he is quoting an ayah from Ad Imran where Allah Ta'ala says O people of the book come to a word that is just between us a just word كَرِمَةٍ سَوَى a just word between us, that we worship none but Allah and that we associate no partners with Him and that none of us shall take others as lords besides Allah. Then if they turn away, say, bear witness that we are Muslims, i.e. in submission to Allah. That is an ayah from Adi Imran. And this is the letter. It's not a long letter. It's short and sweet. It is directly to the point. And the hadith mentioned that when Muqawqas received this letter, and we presume that it's translated to him, its meaning, the Muqawqas, Muqawqas decided that he's going to respect this letter. He treated this letter with great respect and deference, and the narration says that he had his people put the letter in a specially designed ivory box. This ivory box was used to contain the letter, and it was a mark of respect, showing respect for the letter. And he arranged for an Arabic scribe to transcribe his words in reply back to the Prophet And the reply that we find in the books of Sirah is in Arabic. And in that reply, Muqawqa said, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. He mentioned the Bismillah, and he says, To Muhammad, the servant of Allah, from Muqawqas, the king of the cops. Peace be upon you. Salamun alaik. I read your letter and I have understood what you mentioned in it and what you are calling me to. I knew a prophet 
was coming, but I thought that he would emerge from greater Syria, Shem. I have shown hospitality to your emissary, and I am sending two female servants to you as a gift. Both have an esteemed rank in our society. I am also sending you a garment, and I am gifting you a mule to ride on. Peace be upon you. This is a beautiful response. But you see in the response, he's not proclaiming his Islam. But he's speaking peacefully. And he's saying that he gifts him two servants, two female servants. One of them, her name is Maria, and the other is Shirin. And these are sisters in one narration. They're sisters. He sends them when they arrive in Medina. By the time they arrive, just from being in the company of Hatib during the journey and hearing about Islam, they become Muslim. They become Muslim even before they arrived in Medina. And when they arrive in Medina, uh, Maria becomes the Jariya of the Prophet So we say in English, the Jariya would be the bondsmaid or the servant, not a wife. She was not a wife of the Prophet although she did bear him Ibrahim, who passed away, and she was later freed. And although she's not a wife of the Prophet ﷺ, when she arrived in Medina and was incorporated into that family unit, so to speak, she began to observe the same etiquettes and the same hijab and the same standard of behavior as the Ummahatul Mu'minin, the mothers of the believers, his wives. So she has an honored position, even though she wasn't a wife. So she arrives, she becomes the bondsmaid, she bears him Ibrahim, and the other, uh, Sirin or Shirin, she marries the poet Hassan ibn Thabit. She gets married to him, and she became the mother of Abdul Rahman, the son of Hassan ibn Thabit. As far as the mule is concerned, this mule was known as a white mule, and it remained alive until the reign of Muawiyah. So this is what we know about what was gifted to him by the Muqawqas. So going back to the question of his own Islam, did Muqawqas become a Muslim or not? It appears that he did not become a Muslim. Even though he received the letter warmly and treated it with the utmost respect. One narration says that he later remarked, لَوْلَا الْمُلْكِ لَأَسْلَمْتُ were it not for my kingdom, I would have embraced Islam. So that indicates that he didn't become a Muslim, but Allah Ta'ala knows best. But you see, the kingdom was actually preserved. And you know why, because he had respect and he treated the letter with respect. And so his kingdom remained intact uh, until eventually you have, over the course of a couple of generations, Islam spreads. So that is the third letter. We now come to the fourth letter. So we covered Najashi, Number one, the Qaisar of the Rom of the Byzantines. Number two, number three, Muqawqas. Who is number four? The Kisra. Who is the Kisra? The Kisra is not a name. Again, it's a title. The Kisra is the honorary title for the emperor of the Sasanian Persian Empire. And it said that his name was Parvez. That was his name. 
And a letter was sent. The Prophet wasallam dictated a letter that was sent by Abdullah ibn Hudhafa. And we've spoken about him before in a khutbah. Abdullah ibn Hudhafa has some interesting stories, interesting experiences uh, across the years. But this is one of the early stories of him where he was sent to deliver this letter. So he brings the letter and the letter reads as follows. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim min Muhammadin Rasulillah ila kisra azim faris salamun ala man attaba' al-huda. He says, uh, here in this, in this version, salamun ala man attaba' al-huda min wa'amana billahi wa rasulihi wa shahida an la ilaha inna Allah wahdahu la sharika la wa anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluh. So it adds more. He says, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful, from Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, to Kisra, the king of Persia. Peace be upon the one who follows guidance, who believes in Allah and testifies that there is no God but Allah alone, who is one and without partner, and that Muhammad is his servant and messenger. Then he says, I call you to Islam. For I am the messenger of Allah to people collectively. Kafatan. This is important. To all people. I call you to Islam for I am the messenger of Allah to people collectively. So that I can warn those who are alone. And so that the word can be fulfilled upon the disbelievers. The word of God. Become a Muslim and you will be safe and find peace. And if you refuse then upon you is the sin of the Majus. Who are the Majus? We call them the Magi, uh, or you can call them the Zoroastrians, because that was their religious tradition. So, unlike Mokaukas, this letter did not receive a positive response. When the Kisra got this letter, and it was read to him, he became enraged. He was so angry, and out of his rudeness and insolence, he said, how can a slave of mine write to me and ask me to believe in him? Because they looked down on the Arabs because they were an advanced civilization. The Arabs did not have an advanced civilization. So for him, this was an affront. This was an attack. This was rude. How insolent. How could they write a letter making these kinds of demands? So he was so angry, he said this, and he took the letter and he ripped it into shreds and he threw it onto the ground. That was reported back by Abdullah bin Hudhafa. He was there, he saw this, and on his way to Medina, when he got there, he told the Prophet ﷺ how the letter was received, how the Kisra was so rude and the remarks he made and how he tore the letter to shreds and threw it on the ground. And to all of that, the Prophet Sallallahu said, Mazzaqa kitabi, mazzaqallahu mulka. He tore my letter to shreds. May Allah tear his kingdom to shreds. And we know that's exactly what happened during the reign of Umar radiallahu anhu. So these are the four main letters that were sent to the emperors and leaders in that region. The Abyssinian kingdom of Aksum, the Najashi, 
to the Byzantine emperor, the Qaisar, to Muqawqas, the leader of the Copts, the Coptic Christians, and to Kisra, the ruler of the Sassanian Empire, the Persian Empire. So there are other letters we said, and we'll get into those, but these are the four main ones. Now when you look at each of these letters, you can extract a lot of lessons about both the way the Prophet ﷺ communicated, as well as how we give da'wah and address people. So I wanted to look at that a little bit and draw some reflections. Uh, number one, when you look at each of these letters, you find that all of these letters sent to the emperors are void of any pride or arrogance. You see that they were very straightforward and to the point. And you see that many of them had verses of Qur'an or were talking about the core teachings of the Qur'an. They were not long. They were not spanning multiple pages. They were very, very brief, but to the point. And they were void of any pomp or pride or arrogance. That's one thing you see from all of these letters. Another thing you see from the letters is that each of them is tailor-made. This was not a copy-paste operation where it's the same letter being sent to all of the rulers. No, each letter is addressing the ruler in his particular position, his religion, and what will most likely appeal to him. So you see that they're not cut and paste jobs. Each one is delivering a message that leader needs to hear. So compare that to how a lot of da'wah is done, you know, copy-paste da'wah, where the same message is conveyed the same way to all sorts of people at different levels of understanding, uh, different levels in social hierarchies. That's not how da'wah should be. It should be tailor-made and customized for the person where they are, what their religion is, their level of commitment, their level of understanding. It has to be tailor-made. Number three, you also observe from these letters that none of them were provocative or challenging those rulers to any kind of religious debate. Because the Prophet ﷺ proclaimed the truth unabashedly. As Allah says, proclaim openly what you're commanded to proclaim. He starts off the letter identifying exactly who he is. Muhammad Rasulullah. Min Muhammad ibn Abdullah Rasulullah the Messenger of Allah. He's not challenging them to a debate. He's not writing them defensively. He's not writing from a posture of weakness or defensiveness. He's writing from a posture of confidence because he knows the haqq, he's conveying the haqq, and this is how it's conveyed in the letter. Now, this is important because, as some of the ulama say, the power of your own da'wah to others is commensurate with your own yaqeen. If you are wishy-washy, then whatever da'wah you give is going to be wishy-washy. If you're not confident in the message, if there's parts of the message you're embarrassed about, or you don't want to talk about because you feel some shame, even if you don't bring them up, it's going to come out in the way you communicate. The more yaqeen you have, the more yaqeen the message is conveyed in. And one of the contemporary scholars 
talks about this in connection to the story of Ta'if, when the people ejected the Prophet and Zayd ibn al-Haritha from uh, Ta'if, pelting them with stones. And the dua that he made uh, to Allah Ta'ala and also asking for guidance to the people, it communicates a strong yaqeen that no matter what happens, the message will go forward. And that has an impact. You have to have confidence. And do you see in each of these letters, confidence in what is being said. Another message or, or another lesson you can derive from the, not the individual letters, but the way in which they are sent, is the importance of who is chosen to deliver the message. You see that the Prophet is picking individuals who have familiarity with the customs of the people to go and carry those messages. He's not just picking random people from the Muhajirun or Ansar to go on a journey. He's picking specific people who have a history and a knowledge of the customs of those people. Why is that important? It's important because the letters are a message. And the immediate medium of the message is, of course, the paper, the letter. But the one delivering the message is just as important as, as the message itself. It is said that the medium is the message. And in the big picture, we know that to be true because the greatest medium of the message of Islam is the person of the Prophet so the medium is the message. So in choosing the right medium to deliver the message, he's teaching us the importance of the right people being selected to go to this one or that one to convey the message of Islam. People who know the language, people who know the customs and traditions of that ruler or those people. So the medium is the message. And picking the right medium is just as important as the message itself and how it is crafted. He thought very carefully about who would be chosen to go on these journeys and deliver the messages. We see for Hatib, for example, who goes to Muqawqis, Hatib ibn Abi Balta'a was chosen because he had excellent character and they valued high, lofty character and he knew how to address the people. And you see the character in action because Maria and Sirin become Muslim on the way to Medina just by spending time on the road with him and engaging with him as a person. So he was selected specifically. Now, you think about this. This is ancient history, right? But imagine, let us imagine that if the, if the U.S. existed uh, in that time, and it was a world power. Who might be chosen to deliver the message to the President of the United States or the American people? It'll be a person who knows the language and the customs, knows the variations within the people, uh, knows how to communicate, knows what makes them tick. And I would, I would assume that if you had a British empire as well, someone else would have to go, someone who knows the the differences between British culture and American culture. These subtleties are important because you want to convey the message in the best way possible so that the people are receptive to receiving it. 
And the biggest way to do that is to make sure it's conveyed clearly in a way that they understand and through a person that they're open to receive from. There's a big lesson there in how we do da'wah. And you see this later on in, for instance, when the Prophet sends two individuals to Yemen. He sends Mu'adh bin Jabal and he sends Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. Now, Mu'adh bin Jabal is from the Ansar. And he's one of the early Muslims. He gave the bay'ah at Al-Aqaba uh, Thaniya, the second pledge of Al-Aqaba. So he's from the people of Medina. But Abu Musa al-Ash'ari is sent with Mu'adh to Yemen, and he's Yemeni. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari is from Zabid, a Yemeni town. So you have Mu'adh as the faqih, the most knowledgeable of the ummah concerning halal and haram, so he brings with him knowledge of law. And then you have Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, who also knows law, but he knows his people. He knows the customs that are unique to his own people, what makes them tick. And he goes to deliver that message of Islam. He was selected, not haphazardly, but purposely because of his knowledge of his people and the customs. So that's an important lesson we derive from the letters as well. Another lesson we derive from these letters is the importance of having respect for the Prophet His name has to be respected. His name has to be respected whether it is verbalized on the tongue, whether it is written, whether it is received in writing. The way we treat the name of the Prophet says a lot and it's of critical importance. And you see in how these letters were received what happened to the kingdoms. Those who treated the letter with respect, like Muqawqis, his kingdom endured for some time. He endured. Meanwhile, the Kisra who demeaned the name of the Prophet ﷺ, who tore up the letter and threw it on the ground and defiled it, he received the, the, the dua that Allah tear his kingdom to shreds. This is very important. Uh, broadly for everyone in how we treat papers that have the name of the Prophet ﷺ written on them, and more narrowly in how these letters are received. Another lesson we get from the letters is the importance of emphasizing commonalities, emphasizing what we have in common with the recipients of those letters. In the da'wah of the Prophet ﷺ through these letters, he's emphasizing what we have in common with them. He's not emphasizing the differences. He's not mentioning the things in which we differ with the Christian community or the Persian community. He's mentioning the commonalities, and that's specific to the Ahlul Kitab. You see the difference between those letters and the one sent to the Kisra. So in the letter of Najashi, what does he say? He says, I bear witness that Jesus, son of Mary, is the spirit from Allah and his word cast into Maryam, the chaste and the pure. He communicates what we have in common. When he sends the letter to the Qaisar, he again highlights the similarities between Muslims and Christians. When he sends the letter to Muqawqis, he cites Ad Imran. When he sends the letter to the Kisra, however, you see something different. 
because Kisra is the leader of the Persian Empire. Are they Christians? They're not. They are Majusi. They are not from the people of the book. So the way he is addressed is very different from how the Christian rulers were addressed. Now, why is this important? It's important because oftentimes in da'wah, you see people like to highlight the differences and not the commonalities. But Allah Ta'ala tells us to say to the people of the book, تَعَالَوْا إِلَىٰ كَلِمَةٍ سَوَىٰ Let us come to a just word between ourselves. So you want to highlight the similarities, and through highlighting the similarities, bring them closer to the truth so that they abandon the falsehood that is associated with their beliefs while retaining the good that they have in, in their beliefs. This is important because da'wah is not about uh, angrily vocalizing your resentments and your differences with people. Now, sometimes you have to highlight differences and explain them. But a lot of the da'wah that you see, especially the stuff that gets put online, it's really, I call it anti-da'wah, a lot of it, not all. But a lot of it is anti-da'wah because a lot of the people who are out there videoing their own da'wah efforts, a lot of them, they're really just vocalizing their anger and resentment towards the society they live in. And it's more about getting likes and creating uh, a show by shouting people down and highlighting differences instead of actually trying to reach people where they are and preach and bring them to that common word. But you see in the letters of the Prophet ﷺ, there's none of that. He highlights the similarities and then invites them to the truth, which inevitably leads them to get rid of the things that are at odds with the pristine message of Islam, which is the universal message of all of the prophets. So you see that in the letters. Another thing you see in these letters is that all of them were successful. None of them were failures. All the letters were successful. The letter to Muqawqis, for instance, opened up Egypt and then from there all of North Africa to Islam. So it was successful. The letter helped the Coptic Christians in the land because the Prophet ﷺ now has a relationship with them by Maria. So there is a blood relationship. She bore him a child. So now there's a blood tie between him and these people. And in one narration, the Prophet ﷺ gives the wasiyah to treat them well. So this was established through the letter, which established the foundation of that relationship. He said, treat the cops well, treat them fairly, because in that letter comes a peace treaty, blood relations, and so on. You also see from these letters that they set the stage for Islam spreading in the future. Now, Najashi becomes a Muslim, but did his people become Muslim? No. The people did not become Muslim by and large. That would take time for Islam to spread in East Africa. But he became a Muslim. But you see that this set the stage for Islam spreading in the future. The Prophet ﷺ, through ascending the letters, he establishes a dialogue, not one of conflict. And that set the stage for Islam spreading in those lands. You likewise learn from these letters, among the many lessons, 
the lesson that we talked about in the previous session, which is following cultural norms and protocols of a given society is not necessarily blameworthy. And we derive that from the hadith of Anas radiallahu anhu, who mentions that when the Prophet wanted to write to these rulers, he was told that they would only accept letters if they had seals. They had to have an official seal. So what did he do? Well, I'll tell you what he did not do. He did not say, oh, really? Those are the customs of the kuffar? We're not going to follow the customs of the kuffar here. He didn't say that. He said, when told that they only accept letters with seals, he told them to make a ring. And so a ring was made, a signet ring that had Muhammad Rasulullah on it. And he would use that to stamp the letters following the official protocol of those empires. So this is following protocols and cultural norms of other societies in a way that is not blameworthy. So what that indicates is that the Prophet ﷺ would in fact adopt the practices of other cultures to make the message of Islam more appealing to them. As long as those practices are not unlawful in themselves, he had no issue with adopting those cultural practices. What that means for us in this day and age is that we should not put any premium in the idea of just going against the dominant culture just for the sake of going against the dominant culture. And of course, we're talking about things that are neutral. We're not talking about things that are haram here. That's a given. That shouldn't even require a disclaimer, but I have to put it out because someone will hear it and think, oh, you're saying you can do this and that? No, use your intelligence. We're talking about things that are neutral. We should not put any premium on the idea of going against neutral practices from within a particular culture just for the sake of going against the dominant culture. Because the Prophet ﷺ sought to minimize the non-essential differences between him and others. This is important. Maybe not to all of us here, but it is important because Islam has a history in North America. And Islam spread in certain ways, through certain means. And there were a lot of people who became Muslim in the early to late 70s who came out of the hippie movement. A lot of them came out of the hippie movement. I don't even, I'm not going to name names, but there are many major figures now in, in da'wah and education who came out of that broader hippie culture and influence that existed in America in the early and late to late 70s. And the hippie culture was a countercultural movement. So a lot of people became Muslim, and for them it was an extension of that countercultural impulse. And alhamdulillah for guidance. But you have to mature. You have to grow up. You have to live life and realize what's truly important. Islam is countercultural in that it upends negative cultural practices and beliefs, of course. 
but we don't, Islam is not countercultural in seeking to go against the dominant culture in neutral things just for the sake of going against them, right? So if you take the hippie movement, for example, and the converts that came out of that hippie movement, that countercultural movement, what is closer to the Islamic ideal? The hippie countercultural movement, which was largely godless, dabbling in Far Eastern religious practices and beliefs, or their own mothers and fathers living somewhere in rural America, mom and pop, who are probably Protestant or Christian, but pretty much you know, morally straight. Which one is closer to the ideal of Islam? It's their mother and father, most likely. Most likely. So going against the culture just for the sake of going against the culture in things that are neutral is not how you give da'wah to people. Right? So this is a longer conversation, but you can extract this lesson just from the way the letters were sent. Because they were not sent to highlight differences. And likewise, he did not refuse to use certain protocols that were in effect in those cultures just because those cultures were not uniquely Islamic. Right? So those are some of the lessons you can derive from these letters. Now, looking at the time we have, there are other letters that were sent, as we said, over 20. These are the four famous ones, but there were other letters that were sent. And these letters were not sent to uh, heads of empires necessarily. They were sent to tribal leaders or local leaders who had sovereignty, but as representatives of the dominant empire in the area. So for example, you have a letter that was sent along around the same time to a person named Al-Harith ibn Abi Shimr al-Ghassan. Now, Al-Harith ibn Abi Shimr was the ruler of the people of Ghassan. Who are the people of Ghassan? They are basically the Syrian Christians. In that time, Syria was a part of the Byzantine Empire. The areas of Sham were the areas of Rum, Byzantine Empire. But among the native peoples there, you had the Ghassanids. So these are not, they're not uh, European, nor are they fully Arab. It's a little bit of both, but they were there in Sham, and he was the ruler of those people. But he is essentially under the authority of the Qaisar, the Byzantine Empire, emperor. So he also receives a letter because he has some political authority. And the Prophet ﷺ sent Shuja'a bin Wahab al-Asadi to deliver this letter. And the letter said, in the name of Allah, the compassionate, the merciful, from Muhammad, the messenger of Allah, to Al-Harith ibn Abi Shimr, Salamun ala man al-huda. Again, peace be upon the one who follows guidance and believes in it. I call you to believe in Allah alone with no partner and you will secure your authority. You'll secure your kingdom, what you're ruling. Now in the tabaqat of Ibn Sa'ad, he mentions this narration that Shuja'a ibn Wahab set off rapidly as soon as he received the letter to deliver. 
And when he arrived in Damascus, he could not find Al-Harith ibn Abi Shimr in his palace. So he had to wait outside for a few days until he arrived. But as he's waiting outside, he gets into this conversation with the Bawab, you know, the doorkeeper, the guard guarding the palace doors. And this doorkeeper is asking him why he come, why he's come. And Shuja'a bin Wahab says that he is the envoy of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad, sent to Al-Harith. And then he tells the doorkeeper the attributes and qualities and character of Rasulullah This is a time, you know, the king hasn't arrived, this ruler hasn't arrived, they can just converse openly. So he's sharing the message with him and sharing the character and qualities of Rasulullah on whose behalf he's come to deliver this letter. And as the doorkeeper is hearing this beautiful description of this beautiful man, he begins to weep. And as he cries, hearing what Shujara is sharing, he says to him, I have read the scriptures and I have seen the attributes of this prophet exactly there in the scriptures. And there on the spot, he accepts the nubuwa, the risala, and he embraces the deen of Sayyidina Muhammad wasallam. He becomes a Muslim. However, he's the doorkeeper. This is a sensitive position. He keeps his faith secret. So now, Shuja'a ibn Wahab knows, and he knows, but no one else knows. He keeps it a secret. And he's afraid that if he shares that he became a Muslim, he'll be killed. So, Shuja'a ibn Wahab is remaining for a few days, waiting for Al-Harith ibn Abi Shimr to arrive. Eventually he arrives and he is accepted to present himself before him inside of the palace. The doors are open for him. He goes inside. He delivers the letter of the Prophet And when he reads it, his attitude turns very sour and dour. His attitude changes. He was at first welcoming, marhaban, but when he reads the letter, he's upset. He takes the letter, and just like the kisra, he throws it onto the ground. He doesn't shred it, but he throws it onto the ground. And he says furiously, who will take my sovereignty from me? Who will take my authority from me? Because remember the letter says, if you embrace Islam, you'll retain your kingdom. You know, that... He sees that as an implicit threat, that if he doesn't, he's going to lose the kingdom. So he says, who is it that will take my sovereignty from me? I will attack him even if he is in Yemen before he starts to move here. I will preemptively attack him. That's what he said. So then he tells his men, the leader of the Ghassanids, he tells them to, we say, shad shod the horses. You know what that means? You take the shoe horse, you take the horseshoes and you put them onto the hooves of the horses. He tells them to shod the, the horses and to prepare them for travel. And then he turns to Shuja'a bin Wahab, the Sahabi, and says, go and tell your master what you saw. Tell him how I responded. Tell him that we're putting the horseshoes on the horses. In other words, we're preparing to march out and attack him. 
So he's determined now to attack Medina. We haven't seen this response from any other previous ruler who received the letter. And he writes this in a letter to the Qaisar, because remember he has one over him, and that's the ruler of the Byzantine Empire at large. He writes this in the letter to the Qaisar, who just received a letter too, telling him what happened, telling him his intentions to attack Medina. And when the message is delivered to the Qaisar, the Qaisar reads it, he sends a message back telling Harith ibn Abi Shimr the exact opposite. He tells him the exact opposite. Do not attack. Under any circumstances, do not attack this man. So now he's deflated because he can't act unilaterally. He has the Qaisar over him. So he receives the letter from the Qaisar. And when he reads it, it's like he comes to his senses. It's like he lost his temper in the moment because he saw it as a threat to his kingdom. But when he gets the letter from the Qaisar, and he reads it, he comes to his senses. And now he's singing a different tune. He tells Shuja'a that when he leaves, to let him know, so he can give him and those in his retinue, those traveling with him, some gold. And so they get ready to leave, and they give him 450 grams of gold, which is 100 mithqal of gold. And the doorkeeper who's still in the story, he's going to see Shuja'a bin Wahab, who's leaving the palace and preparing to go back to Medina. And he gives Shuja'a some food and clothes that he prepared for him to use on the way. And he says to him, give my regards and greetings to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and tell him that I have become a Muslim. He can't go. He was in this circumstance. He's the doorkeeper. If he leaves, he'll probably be killed. Under threat, he has Shuja'a convey this message. Shuja'a travels back to Medina with the food and the clothes and the gold now, treated very differently from how he was initially treated. And he goes to the Prophet ﷺ and tells him exactly what he heard in detail. When the Messenger of Allah ﷺ had learned of the negative attitude of Al-Harith ibn Abi Shimr against the envoy and the letter, he says, may his sovereignty in fact be destroyed. He couldn't go fight unilaterally, but he would have if he was given the authority. So the Prophet ﷺ makes dua against him, and the Sirah works mentioned that in fact Harith did die as a disbeliever because of that curse of the Prophet ﷺ. And the sovereignty of the Ghassanids was transferred to an individual named Jabala ibn Ayham, who was actually the last of the Ghassanid kings. And there's more to be said about the Ghassanis, because we're going to hear about them later in the story of Ka'ab ibn Madik, because they send a letter later on when some things start to happen that we'll get to later on in the seerah, inshaAllah ta'ala. Now there's other letters, but we'll cover them next week. Uh, next week we'll cover some of the letters sent to other tribal rulers in the various areas of Bahrain, Oman, and these regions. We'll talk about the expedition of Zayd ibn Haritha to Himsa, and then we'll talk about the attempt to attack the Prophet via sorcery, via sihr. It's a very controversial issue. We'll investigate that as well. 
باذن الله تعالى وصلى الله وسلم على سيدنا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم